everybody, Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and it is our privilege to have Dr. Paula Gordon, who's a, an instructor, contract instructor with the Auburn University in their outreach program. Hi, Paula, good to see you. Hello, how are you? I'm really, really happy that you're with us. I was Thank really you. interested to read an article that you wrote recently, or I read it recently, on Disaster Preparedness website about the all hazards approach. Why don't you just tell us about your history in emergency management and how you became interested in it? Well, it's a rather long story. Um, goes back to uh, having been in an earthquake, a major earthquake way back uh, when I won't tell you when because <laughs> it will date me. Uh, let's see. Uh, I um, have been following all kinds of uh, catastrophic events and uh, studying them. And in the course of uh, my uh, career in in Washington D.C., I have um, uh, been. Uh, a full-time contract, full-time consultant with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Just prior to that, I was involved with, that was for two two-year period where I had responsibilities that were wide-ranging and included things like uh, being the liaison to the American Medical Association, focusing on medical aspects of uh, disasters, and also uh, working into um, um, disaster preparedness generally, but trying to, um, the other major role that I had when I was at FEMA was to um, do an issue paper, which was on um, the, uh, which resulted in coming up with the, uh, a recommendation that the agency adopt an all hazards approach to emergency management mm. and, and uh, I was commissioned to do that um, because uh, the Congress was um, very upset with the approach that FEMA was taking at the time uh, to um, nuclear attack preparedness and so uh, what I did this might be very instructive for students because I, I it's one of the more valuable uh, contributions I think I've made to the field um, this whole process is outlined in an article called um, Comparative Scenario and Options Analysis. And that um, article is um, posted on my GordonHomeland.com website. Um, what I did was I interviewed all the top 25 people in the agency to find out what their perspective was and what they were recommending would recommend for FEMA at that point in time, this was in the early 80s. And um, I came up with uh, three different uh, approaches. I put them into a graph form. Um, and then um, one of the approaches was, uh, an additional approach was the status quo, not doing anything. But the last approach was suggested to me by the librarian at, the, uh, at FEMA who pointed out that um, West Germany at the time, it was West Germany at that time, um, had an all-hazards approach, in effect, uh, to, to emergency management, in that they uh, focused on functions rather than have a discrete section on or category of uh, nuclear attack preparedness, uh, which was 
as I say, creating great concerns on the part of some key members of Congress at the time. And what I did then was put this into an issue paper and uh, parsed it out very fully. And surprisingly enough to me, um, I compared and contrasted all these three different options. And surprising to me was the fact that the um, group of 25 who were tasked to, to decide where, where the agencies should go from that point forward, that group of 25 decided on the fifth option, which, which I thought was uh, extraordinary. And one of the things I've learned, which has been valuable to me ever since, was that this is an, this kind of um, presentation of it, uh, of options and parsing out the options on various parameters about their acceptability, the definition, what would be accomplished, what the push, pushback would be, whether the, the public would be accepting, uh, that this kind of approach to educating, uh, to, to uh, uh, impacting or influencing the, the uh, uh, policy of an agency was, was a very good one because it didn't result in any defensiveness on the part of people who had different points of view going in. In fact, they could see very rapidly by looking at this matrix chart um, where their particular approach was different from another approach and how the uh, uh, all hazards approach was really the one that was going to be most beneficial to the whole country. Um, moving on from FEMA, um, I also, before FEMA, I, I participated in, in a, a crisis situation involving I was at the Federal, Federal Energy Office, which later became the Federal, Federal uh, Energy Administration, which then became the Department of Energy. I, I was at the, uh, there at, at the time. Uh, interestingly enough, our, our offices were in Lincoln's War Room in an old historic building across from the White House. But um, with very tall doorways, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting. Um, anyway, um, I was involved in the indep so-called independent trucker strike. And the independent truckers uh, were very upset by some major policies that had been put in place by the government. And they went on strike. And this had major ramifications for the economy uh, of the country. And at one point, they got so upset that they um, threatened uh, civil disobedience and, and um, they threatened to destroy their trucks, which you know, amounts to tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And, um, and violence was threatened. And, and so I um, attended the... Uh, as a kind of undercover uh, agent uh, from the government, I got permission from my boss at the Energy Office to, to sit in all the meetings of the strikers. It was sort of informally detailed through the National Governors Conference. And the National Governors Conference was the uh, organization that was uh, uh, 
um, uh, overseeing the uh, discussions and the arbitration in effect with whatever federal officials get to, to talk with them. And uh, so I would feed back to my boss um, what the demands were. And, and it was um, really touch and go for a while. Um, they, my boss in, in turn would, would uh, talk with his boss who would talk with the White House and finally, uh, I called one afternoon and I said, you have to field um, William Simon, who was then head of the Federal Energy Office. You have to, you know, he has to show up tonight. It was a Sunday, I think. And uh, I think he showed up along with a senator and they began to bring about a resolution to this, this, this crisis. A couple other crises I've been involved in within the Y2K crisis, which uh, I found out early on. I was a uh, visiting professor at, at George Washington University at the time. And I attended a, a workshop that they had a retreat that the uh, department had. Um, and one of the presenters was Stuart Umpleby who talked about the, the, the threat, this was in 1998, the summer of 1998, and he talked about the imminent threat posed by uh, Y2K technology failures. And this particular department included information science people, and uh, none of them really understood the embedded systems problem. The embedded systems, complex digital systems, data systems, control systems are different from um, and more complex uh, than the um, than, than computers uh, are. And uh, they uh, uh, I was dismayed that there wasn't an understanding and ready uh, um, interest or, or concern for the problem that uh, that Professor Empleby noted the kinds of failures you could get to, to all of the critical infrastructure. There could be a cascading effect, for instance, on the grid, the GPS could be affected, pipelines, nuclear power plants, which was very great concern to me, and nuclear weapon systems. Uh, all of this could be affected um, by data-sensitive digital complex digital systems. And this was just not being absorbed by the people at the, at the um, retreat. And it occurred to me that if they weren't getting it, a lot of other people weren't, weren't understanding it either. And so Professor Appleby and I decided to go about briefing people uh, in, in Washington um, on, on Capitol Hill and uh, the Chittle uh, County Office um, in the Senate. Um, we uh, talked to everyone we could, tried to explain to them the seriousness of it. We put on some conferences and some major programs and brought in Ed Yearden, who we can call 
Time Bomb 2000, perhaps you remember that book. He talked about things that go boom in the night. And these were the complex digital systems which were causing, would, could cause failures in nuclear power plants. As late as October of 1999, believe it or not, the government had not uh, taken, uh, in Mr. Koskinen, who was the head of the White House effort on white occasion, uh, uh, they had not taken the kinds of steps that should have been taken, from my vantage point at least, with regard to nuclear power plants. And finally, in October of 1999, just two months before the rollover, they sent out a team of two people, one from the Department of Commerce, National Institute for Standards and Technology, and, and one from the private sector who headed a software company. And they went around and they talked to nuclear power plants and made sure that they were prepared. And many of those who were not prepared rolled back their clocks to 1979 so that this hardly anybody knows about this, this kind of insider information, so that the, uh, there would be no failures uh, triggered by the rollover on January 1st, midnight. Now, since then, one of the things that I've become mostly involved in has been in the pandemic. And, and I uh, have followed it very closely since January of 2020. And, uh, decided that I would add it to, uh, as an elective course, to a certificate program that I teach uh, and helped launch at Auburn University Outreach. Uh, originally it was Auburn University's Center for Governmental Services. It is now under the aegis of uh, Auburn University Outreach. And this, this is a really superb, uh, from my vantage point, uh, emergency management certificate program, which uh, includes uh, four core courses, and then one has a choice of uh, several different uh, elective courses. One of the elective courses that I teach is on the, on the drug crisis. Um, another is on critical infrastructure, which I really focused a lot on during Y2K, with a major white paper on that, which was on on the web in which I think was somewhat influential in the way things unfolded got a lot of attention. Um, uh, the, in, in my experience, there has been nothing comparable to the complexity and the multi-layered uh, complications of, of the pandemic crisis. And it is uh, most, I have had to bring to bear on it every area that I've ever studied because it has a lot to do with um, organizational behavior. That's another area that I talk a lot in. Uh, and with, um, it has to do also with another area of expertise that I have that I've written a lot about, and that's knowledge transfer. Uh, and research utilization, 
with a, a lot of work for the National Science Foundation on research realization and help them to uh, uh, reconsider uh, the approach they were taking to applied science. Um, Dr. Paula, just, just because of um, time and making sure that um, we honour your time, what I'd like to do is just share on the screen, Dr. Paula, the, um, the article that you wrote that oh, okay. I found to be very, very, very thorough. I hope you can see it on the screen right now. Yes. Yep. So I just want to highlight highlight this for everyone. This is in the disasterpreparedness.com, and uh, it's in the resiliency section here. It was written last year by Dr. Paula, and it has some, some really clear graphics and information. And I was hoping you might be able to talk us through the um, typology and then also to talk about just briefly the multi-tiered. Let me see if I can grab that, multi-tiered. We get multi-tiered disasters, just to make that clear for people who may not be aware of the typologies and the multi-tiered disasters. So can you share with us a little bit about this? Yes, um, this came about uh, when I was um, working as a full-time consultant to, to FEMA, and it occurred to me that um, there was such a concentration on uh, large-scale and medium-scale emergencies uh, that there was uh, this kind, kind of precluded any attention to um, larger-scale catastrophes which could involve uh, millions of people if not more and mm. uh, so I developed this way of looking at emergencies and the multi-tiered nature of them uh, and one approach to looking at that is to look at the numbers of people who might be injured or, or killed as a result of the emergency. Um, and I gathered all kinds of background information on that and uh, wrote a publication that, um, that included um, data on uh, the numbers of people on the property that was done for a 10-year period in the United States. Um, I had an interesting discussion with uh, General Russell Henry about this. Uh, I met him after Katrina uh, at, at a couple of conferences. In the first conference uh, that I met him at, I uh, uh, drew uh, on a paper napkin uh, a rough sketch of the typology and I said to him do you agree that um, most planning stops in the middle uh, for emergency preparedness and he, he definitely agreed with that. I also asked him a, another question which might be of great interest to students and that was uh, uh, I asked him this was the first thing I said to him when I met him after I said uh, are you Russell Honoray? Because he had lost some weight since Katrina. And I wasn't totally certain that it was him in the hallway at a, at a conference. And I said, uh, I have a question for you. I said, um, would you say that, that you are one of the only people in the aftermath um, of Katrina who, who 
was involved in writing after-action reports and reporting on it to Congress, who understood that Katrina was different, that it, because of the unprecedented size of it, involving the 92,000 square mile area, uh, and, and because of the fact that all of the major elements of the critical infrastructure were in a state of failure, would, would you not agree that, that um, uh, you, you uh, were one of the only people who recognized the fact that this was a disaster of unprecedented scale? And he said, yes. And I thought that was very, very illuminating. Uh, also somewhat humorous in that such a long question would have such a short answer. But he understood as few people have understood, that there was hardly anything that could have been done in um, Katrina in the in first days in the aftermath. And uh, in fact, he had said uh, on a CNN program that he had likened it, likened responding to Katrina as uh, being uh, on a football team which uh, could not gain any yardage in the first half. <laughs> mm. And uh, and that is exactly, you know, and, and yet what you had with Katrina, you had this unusual scapegoating of, of everyone who had any right. role whatsoever. And I, I did write that up in, in a paper uh, and presentation I gave at the University of Nevada on uh, called the matrix analysis. And I think if your um, students would find this of great interest, that particular uh, presentation is posted at um, gordonpublicadministration.com. Okay. I'll make sure that I get the link to that and put that in the show notes. Your other Gordon Homeland uh, website, I did put the link in the chat. I went okay. and found it while you were talking and I've put it in the chat so people okay. have that. Can I just scroll down the page to um, the multi-tiered section, which we just talked about a moment ago, expanding the course of um, content to cover multi-tiered disasters. Can you just briefly explain what are multi-tiered disasters? And you've got a list here. Um, well, I think uh, the pandemic is, is a perfect example. Uh, you have, um, you, you, if, you, if you identify all the key stakeholders and all those who are influencing the direction of the, uh, of the response to the pandemic, you find that um, there could not be more differences in perspectives on the parts of all key players. And in fact, you might even say there are parallel universes when it comes to the approach that's being taken by those in the medical community to, um, to the pandemic. Um, there are, uh, for instance, um, the Great Barrington um, Declaration, which now has over 800,000 signatories from doctors all over the world. 
there is a, a newer a, a declaration that was put together uh, with Dr. Robert Malone's um, under his leadership and, and with others uh, in, in, the, in the world uh, at the Rome Summit on the pandemic, which was held in September. And they have thousands of uh, signatories as well. These doctors are urging that early uh, treatment be emphasized. And they uh, are urging that doctors have freedom to uh, uh, treat uh, uh, patients based on their understanding and knowledge of, of medicine. What is happening, however, is that they're be being often being precluded from doing that. For instance, uh, so-called repurposed drugs such as uh, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which have been used widely throughout the world effectively, uh, have not been uh, fully authorized to be used in the United States and other places as well. And, and one of the reasons is that it has to do with science. And this is, this is a, one of the multi-tiered disasters, I think, involved with, with uh, uh, the pandemic, is that um, there are some uh, in the uh, hierarchy of uh, uh, the government in the United States who are calling for responsible for the policy in the United States who are focusing primarily on um, a traditional approach to science which involves um, what you call uh, um, controlled studies and reliance on controlled studies um, which um, can take several years to, to accomplish. And when you take a repurposed drug and you try to, um, in the United States, and you try to uh, use it, even though it's proven safe for the use and many other uses, um, it has to go through um, all kinds of trials that um, make it very difficult um, for the, um, uh, uh, the drug to be used in a timely fashion. This happened with HIV in the 80s when a drug known as Bactrim, B-A-C-T-R-I-M, was widely used and then the FDA uh, made, it made it impossible for it to be widely used uh, for a two-year period while it, while it underwent all kinds of uh, studies. And in the as a consequence, thousands of lives were lost unnecessarily. I mean, had been saving lives up to then. And this is mm -hmm. an example of, of how uh, uh, disasters can be created uh, by uh, unwittingly by people who are uh, kind of mired as as uh, um, General Honoré was one to say, don't get stuck on stupid. Uh, with, with a pandemic, you, you have to do as, um, you have to fight the battle with the um, uh, ammunition that you have, and if, uh, you protrude it from doing that, um, lots of people will lose their lives unnecessarily. 
there's there's another aspect to this that hardly anybody is paying attention to, and that has to do with some recent scientific uh, uh, technological innovations um, that have to do with uh, uh, that one of the major ones that I've been involved with and I've tracked down in the course of developing this course on pandemic has to do with a so-called um, intelligent disinfection door. And, and this is being utilized in places like uh, Tyson's uh, packing plant and, and uh, Chrysler plants and nursing homes and it's even being utilized in the hospitality sector in, in the UAE. And what it amounts to is, is as a person walks, it, it's a 10 second process and you can look it up um, on my own, uh, LinkedIn website um, or I'll be happy to send it to you if you want to email, that you email me. Uh, there's a, a, a video that was done uh, demonstrating this drawer that was on cable uh, news um, uh, years ago. And it, it's a matter of um, walking through a doorway which uh, will uh, have, has utilizes three different um, things, one being UV light, one being ozone, and one being a disinfectant spray, which is um, uh, harmless to humans. And also there's a thermographic feature which will take your temperature. So you will know as you will be, anything on the surface, including your shoes, will, all of the bacteria, all of the, of the, uh, the RNA and the, the viruses will be killed as a result of going through this 10 second process. And I think that uh, we would do very well to utilize these throughout the world uh, so as to stop the spread in, in facilities and be assured that, that the spread of viruses and, and uh, not just the coronavirus, but other viruses as well and variants of the coronavirus be stopped as fully as possible through taking these kinds of measures. Hmm. Well, Dr. Paula, this has been really interesting, and I um, have the links to you in the chat and also in the description. What's the best way for people to get hold of you if they want to reach out to you about Auburn University's course that you've developed or for consulting? What's the best way for people to get hold of you? My email address is pgordon at rcn.com. And then if you look up uh, on Google or in DuckDuckGo uh, search engine, you you can find me on LinkedIn under uh, my full name there that you see on the screen, Colony Gordon, PhD in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you very much for your time and everybody else that's watching and for our students and our graduates, uh, if you'd like to improve your qualifications, then remember that we have our bachelor and master's program in emergency management. And um, we do recognize the training and the uh, experience that you have in emergency management in your industry and give you credit for that. And we'd love to get you connected to us. So do go to uard.ac.nz or uard.org. And then the show notes for this interview. There are the links to Dr. Paula's website also in the chat 
so you can reach out to her. So thank you very much for being with us, Dr. Paula. Thank you.